Happy New Year, Jack! Happy New Year! Buon How are ya? Good, thanks. Buen anno! Hope you had a good Christmas, did you? We had a very nice Christmas. Yeah. COVID-free. COVID-free, that's what we want to hear. Um, to so, I guess we are starting 2022 with an exciting series of foodie podcasts. What's our topic for the next few weeks? Well, since we, when we first thought about doing this podcast, I was really excited to try and get stuck into what we're looking at as kind of like the next generation. So younger mm. people, whether their parents were in it or whether they're coming in from something else, people who are innovating and starting something new in food. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. Mm. I like that idea of young people working in food. Young entrepreneurs. Great. Yeah. What's young now? Are we are we defining young? Uh, that's a good question. Are we talking like 15-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds? I'd say everyone's definition of young is just like one year older than themselves, isn't it? <laughs> so, 18, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess we're talking about people in their 20s, early 30s. That that That's who we're focusing on, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's hard enough to find people maybe in their 20s who are working in farming or in other aspects of food production, but but certainly um, young people. Great. So to kick things off, we actually, God, we went the opposite way. We, we went the other side of the spectrum because we wanted to find somebody who had inspired these generations of people in Irish food. And that is, I guess, no other than Darina Allen. She is definitely one of the most influential people in our country in terms of food, right? Yeah, we when, when we were chatting to Darina about eggs a couple of months ago, we asked her if she'd be okay to come on and help us kind of clear up this idea of like the new generations in food and maybe share her story about what the environment was like for her when she embarked on, on the journey that she went on in food and let's kind of look at that compared to now and what's the differences and and try and find some of these people and unearth some of these young entrepreneurial food producers who are out there. Yeah, that's great. And it was funny that like when we actually asked her, you know, straight up, what was your day one experience like opening the Ballymanu Cookery School? She said, no, that story starts a lot further back, way back when she was in school. Let's go. I mean, when I was, in a way, when I was at, at boarding school being educated by the Dominican nuns in the 60s, you know, I really had no ambition to be uh, any kind of career woman or anything like that. I mean, all I really wanted to do was to find something to, you know, occupy me for a couple of years while I would look out for a, 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 a handsome chap, preferably with a bit of money. And uh, we'd get married and we'd have a few cool little kids and I'd pick my nails and we'd go on picnics. And that was the absolute, and I'm not joking, that was the height of my ambition. But I remember the poor Dominican nuns uh, who were considered to be very visionary nuns and indeed were. But anyway, they were encouraging us girls, uh, this was in the early 60s, to have a proper career you know, to do law, do the sciences, do architecture, medicine, whatever. And um, then, you know, what were we going to do? And of course, a lot of my friends were certainly going down that path. But all I knew anything about was um, cooking or gardening, for that matter, because my, I'm the eldest of nine children. My mother loved to cook. And as you can imagine, with nine children, there was pretty much always cooking going on in our house. So I kind of learned how to cook. I never remember learning how to being taught how to make bread or something because it just was happening around me. So I absorbed a lot of the basic things like that through osmosis. Have a proper career. What a word. And I suppose, is there anything as a proper career, really, Jack? 
Well, God, I don't know. Career is a bit of a tough one. I mean, occupying your day, trying to, whether you're earning money or producing something within your home for your family, I'm not too sure what else a career could be. But I guess it was a very different time in a way, you know, speaking from the perspective of a young girl back at that time. But even in general as as well for men, there wasn't exactly as many options as there is now. So it's certainly a different time. Yeah, yeah. And and clearly she had this passion for cooking and that career just wasn't a viable option. This is at a time now before, almost before any of you were born, uh, where cooks and chefs had no status. Uh, Not only that, but men were chefs and women um, just ran tea shops or there were some ran country hotels, something like that. So what she decided to do to fit into this mould was complete a course in hotel management. Perfect. Keeps everyone happy. And when the course was done and it was time to step out into the big bad world, there was a pause because, you know, she knew that it was still cooking that really inspired her. And the sort of job that the rest of my my um, classmates uh, had was, uh, or would aspire to, was actually an assistant manager in one of the top hotels in Dublin, in the Shelburne, the Gresham, the, the, Gresham, the you know, um, the Russell or whatever. And you'd have a lovely little uniform and you'd have a badge saying you're assistant manager. I thought that was another name for slave, but anyway... <laughs> Uh, so anyway, I kept, so I still, everybody in my class had a job and just very close to the end, one day I met one of the senior tutors in the corridor and who was really nice, Maura Marnahan was her name from Oma, I remember very well. And she said to me, have you not got a job yet? Everybody else in your class has a job. Why haven't you got a job? And I told her, I really want to cook and I want to learn. I had a fixation about making ice cream and I wanted to learn how to make soufflés and, and terrines and things that sounded. And I wanted to learn much more about fresh herbs. I knew what parsley was, of course, and maybe chives and thyme, but I'd certainly never heard of tarragon or basil or anything like that. And I really wanted to learn more. And she, I told her this and she told me I was too fussy why wouldn't I be like the rest of them and get a job in? in? And then uh, she said to me, funny, I was having dinner the other night with some friends and they were talking about this woman down in Cork, this extraordinary woman who seems to have opened a restaurant in her own house. It's a farmhouse right out in the country in East Cork. And she writes the menu every day, depending on, you know, what's in the garden. And they're quite close to the sea. So whatever fish comes in from the boats and... Um, and from what I remember, uh, they seem they have a Jersey herd, and they make home. She makes homemade ice cream, and they have pigs and all sorts of things, and greenhouses. And I just like couldn't believe my ears. I thought, oh my god! So it's like ticking all the boxes. So I said, oh my goodness, that sounds exactly um, what I'm looking for. So she couldn't remember her name. So she said, oh look, I'll go back to my friends and and she uh, and find out the the details. And she came back to me a few days later and met me and gave me a piece of paper. And she said, that's the name of that woman I was telling you about. Write to her. And of course, the name of the piece of paper was Myrtle Allen, who. And of course, um, <laughs> became my mother-in-law, so I became oh. a, a member of the family by the simple expedience of running off with her eldest son. But anyway, that was that. Uh, anyway, fast forward to where you actually asked me the question. Uh, so basically, so how did the Bounty Cook School come about? Well, basically, my husband was in horticulture. We had in a, the family in a big way. We had five acres of greenhouses, 65 acres of apples, a big mushroom farm, exported apart from everything else. And then in the late 70s, early 80s, 
there was sort of the perfect storm as far as we were concerned. So a lot of things sort of happened. In 1973, we'd gone into the EU. So all of those tidal wave of regulations were beginning to gather momentum at the late 70s and early 80s and impact on people's lives. There was also the oil crisis, and in Ireland at that time, there was 25% inflation. We were in a big recession. The oil crisis really impacted on us because we had five acres of greenhouses, and at that stage, they were pretty old greenhouses that really would have needed a big investment to make them more efficient. So, uh, And the price of oil went up 400% in, within a couple of years. So as well as that, then the whole cheap Overnight. food... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I love that little interruption there. Will you come in here, please, and correct everything that Torino is saying? Fact checker. Um, okay, well, you can decide whether it was overnight or... or uh... I don't want to interrupt anymore. <laughs> no, 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 anyway, you're not meant to be listening. <laughs> <laughs> this is the, the oh, it's the husband and wife thing. Well, I tell the story. Will you tell the story? <laughs> where was I? Tarina, you had it wrong. Keep going. <laughs> Can't remember where I was. Oh yeah. Then the other thing that was uh, the whole supermarkets came on stream uh, for a start, and then the whole cheap food policy kicked in. So in other words, in, I mean, the the business, uh, the horticulture business had been a very successful business. We were exporting uh, to the UK and all the rest of it all the time, big graders, all that kind of thing. And suddenly we found that uh, we were getting less and less for our produce, um, you know, month after month, year after year. And eventually somebody said, we used to sell our produce to the wholesalers in Cork. That's how you did it. And and uh, there was a bond of trust between you and your wholesalers. And then somebody said, look, forget about the wholesalers, you know, go to the supermarkets. They're the thing of the future, you know. So we were delighted. We actually got a um, we got an order from one of the big supermarket chains which, who, should, who should be nameless and made a contract and made a deal and all that sort of thing with them and started to supply them and with apples because they were actually getting quite a lot of criticism that they had no Irish apples for sale. So um, the apples would be very carefully graded and taken in and all of that. And then somehow or other, uh, often they would uh, find some fault with something and, you know, an excuse to return stuff. Then some other often seemed to be often reasons why they wouldn't pay you as much as had been agreed. And this was not a way we'd ever dealt with uh, people before. Uh, so anyway, after a bit this went on, we realised that this was not just the odd thing. It was actually, it felt like it was policy. So anyway, this went on and on. And I remember we always had this lovely time every day where I would get the children, we both get up early, I'd get the children dressed and off to school. Uh, and then Timmy would drive into Cork with the with the produce, and then he'd come back, and we'd sit. We'd have this lovely moment every day where we'd sit down and have breakfast together. And I remember he walked in through the kitchen door one day. I can still see him, and he he said, looking even more despondent than ever, and he said to me, "I don't care if I have to crawl on my knees. I'm never doing that again." Um, some young pup of a supermarket buyer had just said to him, look, um, take something back or whatever. And he just said, that's it. We have to find a different way to earn a living. Uh, that's it. We have to see what kind of talents we have, what resources we have between us, and we have to find a different way. So that's that is how the school came about. Because, um, I mean, and as he always says, uh, he put me out to work, basically. Yeah. Okay, so, so credit to Tim. So it's, so it's totally credit to Tim. And and, as, and definitely, there's no question, there's nothing like desperation. There's nothing like you're back to the wall 
to to come up with a solution. And, you know, so basically we were really in danger of losing the roof over our heads and we had four small children at that stage. Uh, so basically that we had to find a different way. And I mean, so many people in the last recession and during this COVID time and everything have been in exactly the same situation where they have to completely go in a different direction or pivot all these new words we now know. And there are ways uh, to do it, and but it, all of them involve hard work. But I love to cook, and um, I realised at some... St- I think I'd been giving with Myrtle, actually. Uh, we'd been in the winter in Balmalu. Um, Myrtle, who was my mother-in-law, such a great entrepreneur and pioneer in her own way, to try and help to fill the bedrooms in the winter, she started a series of short courses, mm-hmm. uh, of, you know, once a week, and I would help her just, get, you know, bring up the ingredients and sort of... Uh, just handing out the things and she was always so wonderfully generous and encouraging and then when she got then I mean I come from a long line of mad women when you think of it I mean she decided to open a restaurant in Paris if you don't mind to showcase Irish food called La Ferme Londres so when she went was going off to Paris people were still asking for the cooking classes the following winter and she said why don't you go ahead and do them and I, I said, oh, nobody will come and see me because it's your name. That's my, my name meant nothing to people at that stage. And uh, she said, no, you can do it. You know, go ahead and do it. So I started, uh, I, I, I picked up the courage and it took a lot of courage, actually, uh, to, uh, to put on um, a series of Saturday mornings. Uh, the, the first of anything you do is the hardest. Mm-hmm. And then when you get over the first, you know, it gives you some confidence and you can build on that. Yeah, the first thing you do is always the hardest and things are always so much easier when you have a grip on it, right? Isn't it? Yeah, but when the grip comes a lot later, I guess, no? Yeah, 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 it does. So I suppose one of the characters that we know in Ballymaloo Cookery School is Darina's brother, Rory. He's been a hugely instrumental part of the cookery school's success, right? My brother's pretty super talented, as you know. He's a fantastic cook and really artistic and creative and everything as well. And Rory is a fantastic cook and he's an amazing teacher too. So Darina told us about the time that the two of them went to Paris together. Now, this was right at the infancy of the cookery school. And after eating their way around the city, which, to be honest, sounds like complete heaven, Darina took some time out to follow her own dream and do a cookery course with acclaimed Italian food legend, Marcella Hazan. You know it, Marcella. Not personally, but sure, I know about her. She would be a bit of a legend in Italy as well, but certainly abroad, she'd be seen as a fantastic, um, authentic Italian cook who has spread correct Italian cooking internationally. Amazing. Now, Dorina believed that this course was an important stepping stone to see, I suppose, how things were done and how they might replicate some of that in Cork. But in actual fact, this trip, and in particular, a visit to the local market became the moment when she realised that eating local was always best, no matter where you were in the world. So how did that happen? On a lot of the stalls, there would be like two lots of peaches or two lots of tomatoes or two lots of aubergines or something. And one was, one would, the, 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 one would be often more expensive than the other, obviously. And I noticed after a bit that a lot of the ones that were more expensive, they seemed to come from... Uh, someplace called Nostrana or Nostrale, 
Now you speak Italian, so uh, don't say anything for a minute. But and I kept trying to ask these stallholders who are really fed up of tourists taking photographs of them and not buying something. I kept saying, where is this place called Nostrale or Nostrana? Because all the good stuff <laughs> seemed to come from there. And they said, uh, uh, and they said, oh, this is actually that's not a place. You know, it's not a place. It's not a whatever. It's it means local. It means. And I said, well, why is it more expensive if it's local? They said, they looked at me as though I had 10 heads. said, local? It means they come from the local area. It's fresher. It's better. Of course it's more expensive. Now, this is at a time, which you wouldn't realise, where in Ireland, the word local was a derogatory term. Mm. So if something was local and it was selling in a local shop, you'd expect to get it for less. Mm. So that was one of those really whatever they call them, eureka moments in my life, where suddenly I thought, local, fresher, better. Of course it should be cost more. Of course it's better. So that was one very important experience that I had. <laughs> eureka, eureka. Gotta love it. Like, so she was telling us the whole class, they went for dinner to a seafood restaurant that evening and they were there, you know, sitting down on these stilts, looking at the view, soaking up the atmosphere, enjoying all that beautiful local seafood. And as she said herself, and it was good, but I suddenly realised that the fish that we were getting in in Ballycotton at that time, the fresh, mm. lovely fresh summer place and the, and the lobster and everything, was actually better. Mm. And I suddenly realised that what Myrtle had said all those years and, and really knew at a time when, remember in Ireland, we had a very big inferiority complex about our own produce because we were sure that what they had in England or America somewhere had to be better than what we had here. So Myrtle had always said to me, we're so lucky we have such wonderful produce. Suddenly I realised that the produce we had in Ireland was every bit as good if not better than what they had initially or whatever. And that was a very important moment. It sounds funny that one wouldn't have realised that but in Ireland we had an inferiority complex at that time. So you have to have something to compare to. So I came back fired up and I said to Timmy the solution is under our feet here we are we have the ideal place to have a cooking school it's because we're in the middle of a farm we can grow so much of our own produce and you know and so and on love being a teacher. yeah and now as it turns out upset I was longing to pass on all of that to everybody and uh, uh, also uh, the at this stage and it took us years for the penny to drop, actually. It was one of a student from abroad who said it to us. At this stage, the Ballymaloo Cookery School, in the middle of a 100-acre organic farm, um, is considered to be unique in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. students literally come and have done from the second year, I think, started to come from all over the world. Wow. What a story. What a beginning, right? Yeah, but what do you, do you think we still have that inferiority complex? Yes. <laughs> yes, we're getting better at it, but I I think I think we do. I think Irish people have an inferiority complex about lots of stuff. Mm. Well, take it from someone who lives in Italy, it's it's actually completely true. Really? Why do you say that? The general quality in Ireland is amazing by comparison to international standards. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And and I suppose when you travel overseas now, you realise the value and uh, of what we have, like in terms of the taste and the freshness and the availability of local food. I mean, we, we're really pretty privileged. But um, yeah, it's just, I suppose, sitting up and realising that is the important thing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. OK, 
let's get back to Dorina. So we've had you as a teacher and listening a little bit more about you as a student, I think I'm now understanding exactly how you ended up becoming the teacher that you did. Right. <laughs> what I'm interested in, and it's, it's something that maybe worries me a small little bit, but obviously I'm an ever optimist, yeah. is our, my generation, but I'm not even the new generation anymore. There's a generation below me now that's coming through. And as yeah. a teacher, I've always wanted to ask you. Yeah. Um, there was so much change from 83 before yeah. to where we are now and hearing about how you ended up with the school and how you ended up forming the, yeah. the thoughts that you have and having the, the opportunity to be able to teach. Who are you seeing now? What, what are you seeing? What's the job for the next generation that are coming through? Because no doubt we will change as much in those years yeah. in the following oh ones goodness, as yeah. we did in yours. Yeah. Um, what do you see as, as the most important thing right now for people? Well, you know, I'm super optimistic, actually. I suppose I've always been a half full, rather, uh, glass half full rather than half empty um, person. And I just see so many of the young people craving to relearn what many people might call forgotten skills or skills they, they never learned. And so it's happening in farming. It's always interesting to see what's happening in America because what happens in America very often filters over here uh, in four, sometimes five years. It's a little faster now because of the internet and all of that. But basically there's an incredible uh, uh, agrarian, young agrarian food movement. And there's the greenhorns and all of that. So, so many young people... They are really questioning and they uh, are saying, but do I really want to go uh, in and be in the corporate world? Or, or they're craving to, to relearn how food is produced, where it comes from. And they, they, particularly in America, there's so many food deserts. They're desperate. They, they've got the business about that food really impacts on our health and our, our well-being and our energy, our vitality, everything. And But they can't find very often uh, what they're looking for in shops and maybe if they're lucky enough to a really good farmer's market close to them, and there are many very good farmer's markets in America, but they want to go back out. They want to, they want to sow seeds. They want to learn how to grow things. It's a mystery to them, and they realise what an important skill it is. And so they're craving uh, the knowledge and uh, that's really quite the movement across America now and there's a huge increase in the number of small farms and uh, and people who are farming organically but on a small scale I mean it's totally counterintuitive in many ways in my experience yeah. with the neighbor food I think the average age of the vegetable farmers is yeah. 35 really that are that are newly supplying in with us yes. newly started yeah young and, couples uh, and with the Certainly nowadays, I think for many people, the, the, the main emphasis, you know, from parents wanting their children to get on well and everything like that is to encourage them to have a set of academic skills. And, you know, there's this whole, whole feeling that unless you go to university and do lots of degrees and this, that and the other, you're never going to have a successful career. But I really uh, want people uh, to realise that. You know, there. Of course, if you're passionate about something, um, you you don't. You know, you can. It could be woodwork. It could be ballet dancing. It could be disco dancing. It could be anything. Uh, to have the courage, if you can, and to follow that dream, and then you can do it. You need the passion to. You see, I've got no formal training at all, at all, as a teacher, or uh, as a. Uh, I've no business training or whatever. But yet, 
Um, I, but I suppose in a way I've always, once I realised that I had something that actually other people didn't necessarily know, uh, and I really wanted to share that. Right. Uh, I, I, and I, I'll tell you, I often used to say to people uh, that, you know, how lucky am I to be teaching cooking, which actually, in a way, uh, can change people's lives. You know, you, you teach somebody how to make a loaf of bread or something, and you're actually giving them a gift for life. You're giving them something that they'll use every day that will enhance their quality of life that they can share with other people, etc. And I often used to say how fortunate I was to be teaching cooking rather than algebra or geometry or something. I mean, I'm sure they're terribly important, but basically it doesn't change lives in the way that cooking does. So, I mean, I've been really fortunate to have somehow or other found a way to earn a living and keep the roof over our heads and and enjoy life that makes me when I wake up in the morning feel like ooh another day and you know that I feel like skipping across the the gravel over to the cooking school uh, to see uh, to meet the students who are and you see how wonderful is it as well we're very lucky that the students who come to the cooking school it's a private cooking school. They come from all over the world and they really want to be there mm. and they really want to learn and they want to make use of every moment and do a lots of extracurricular things in the in the bread shed and in the fermentation shed and the dairy, etc. So they're just so hungry for knowledge and they're sitting on the edge of their chairs. So as a teacher, and there are many of us, of course, at the school, uh, it's a dream to stand up in front of students who are waiting for your every word and really, really interested. And uh, and then when they leave, you know that they're taking, they're part of the Ballymukoki School family and they're taking, they're taking this newfound knowledge with them and it, you know that it's going to impact on the rest of their lives. We're talking about inspiring the importance to inspire others. And your path as a teacher, who is inspiring you at the moment? Um, now, the there a lot of the the young people who are um, coming back and starting small businesses again. Food, I talk. I suppose we're talking about food and um, and farming, all of that. So uh, there, there are many. I could. Shall I mention some names? For, that would be great. Yeah. I think, if, if you're happy to. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I mean, there. You know, they, they, they're many of those young artisan bakers, basically. That and this, in a way, one feels such hope for the future when you think of, um, you know. The, the, the renaissance of making good, for example, good bread again. So basically, things have to get very bad sometimes before you have a, a counter movement. Mm. And it was the so when the bed got so bad, uh, basically, uh, that it was for many people almost inedible. Then people started to uh, to bake sourdough again. This started again in America at the Acme Bakery, I suppose, in in, in uh, uh, Berkeley. But uh, basically, so now. Over here, for example, there are several of our past students who, lots of them who are uh, doing arson baking uh, and making wonderful sourdoughs to a great extent inspired by Tim in our little bread shed at the back of the cooking school where they make this wonderful, lots of variations on sourdough bread. So there'd be people like um, Sarah Richardson in the Seagull Bakery in uh, Tremor and Dunmore East uh, 
again totally passionate uh, absolutely fired up with the importance of it's not just a way of earning a living for any of these people this is a very important thing um, there has to be as you mentioned a real passion real to get dedication for a greater the greater good sort of thing so uh, Sarah uh, makes wonderful bread there and thing. And then, of course, also in Dublin, there's Owen Klusky, who uh, uh, at Bread 41, I mean, he again changed career. Um, a lot of these people have changed career and they find a huge satisfaction in producing something that's that they can really be proud of, that they know is nourishing um, and, and, and delicious and nourishing and not doing people a damage, actually, which a lot of the ultra-processed food is uh, doing nowadays. Then there are lots of restaurateurs. I mean, in uh, over to the UK, um, somebody like Tommy Myers, Thomasina Myers, who again was a, a past student. I'm just picking out past students uh, because they're just jumping uh, to my mind. Um, and Tommy... Uh, again, was in a for her a dead end job in in, uh, uh, in the city of London, and uh, she was really at a crisis in her life. Uh, and she went to a fashion show and sat down beside Clarissa Dixon Wright. She was one of the fat ladies, remember? And she said to her, "Clarissa, please help. I'm stuck. I hate what I'm doing. What should I do?" And uh, they'd been talking about food, and Clarissa said, "Well, don't you love to cook?" Why aren't you cooking? And uh, Tommy, I mean, again, it's back to my God, couldn't just cook, you know, um, uh, because what would my parents say, etc. And uh, then uh, she said, well, where would I learn how to cook? Uh, I can't just go into a restaurant. I don't know how to do anything. She said, well, you should go to Ballymaloo in Ireland. You should go to the cooking school um, in Ballymaloo. And she came to the cooking school and uh, then... Of course, discovered, as you did, Jack, <laughs> wasn't that right? Uh, the, the, what she really, uh, she loved to do and she had the courage to follow her dream, went off to Mexico and of course started a whole, I don't know how many, uh, something like 17 Oaxacas in oh, London guess, now, yeah. aren't there? Doing uh, Mexican street food. And so, you know, that's, and then Stevie Parrell was actually in her class. He also has, I don't know, many restaurants in London and uh, then others, um, uh, you know, have a lot of them do beautiful, simple, contemporary, uh, modern British, modern American, modern Irish, for that matter, uh, food. But then there are some of our past students who also have uh, Michelin stars. And no thanks to me because I have no idea how to do those twiddles and bows and smarties on top that they do on a lot of the the the. Or the I could just about do a skid mark on a plate. <laughs> But anyway, so uh, uh, James Ramsden, for example, in London would be one of those. And then in, in, in New York, I love the food at King. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and the, 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 the two girls, Jess and, and Claire at King, on the corner of King Street, they do uh, a beautiful uh, food. They go really go out of their way to source really good quality produce. All of our students, really, by the time they've been with us for even five or 12 weeks, they know that they most important thing in to get to have delicious food is to really put the effort into the sourcing of the ingredients, the shopping. And so they go, they all go out of their way to find, to link up with farmers and food producers and so on, to find the very best possible raw materials for their cooking. And then they are so, all of them are so generous with sharing their information and spreading the joys. So, and then there are others who are farming, for example, um, the head of the Greenhorns movement, the young agrarians in America, one of the heads of it is Severine von Schammer, whom you know Severine as well. 
And uh, so she's another very inspirational person. So they're, they're young farmers, they're uh, young horticulturalists, uh, cooks and chefs, and then others going back to fishing as well, and fishing with day boats, and my goodness, and then selling directly to the public. Others, you know, it's a wonderful time uh, for people who are interested in food. Not only is there a huge need for somebody to go back and produce nourishing wholesome food and really think about the whole reason why we eat is to nourish us uh, and to produce the kind of food that's going to, as I say, make people well and healthy rather than otherwise. So there's a uh, there's so much of uh, of uh, that going on, and I'm hugely hopeful. Actually, I could do a big long string of people who are actually doing inspirational stuff. And the the other thing is, you know, so many in food trucks. There's another girl on Ballybranigan Strand down near Sinise Cork. Uh, and uh, she is, her family are in auctioneering and all the rest of it. But she and uh, she pivoted, of course, in several ways during the uh, COVID uh, pandemic, doing wonderful picnic boxes and hampers and everything. And now she's got a, um, a horse box and she does delicious food from uh, her little horse box food truck uh, for you know, the people who are enjoying the the belly branding and strand going for a walk and so on she's now they say it's it's more difficult to find a horse in a horse box than to find a cup of coffee <laughs> but so many wonderful and i love the way you can take food and there's so many opportunities i mean yesterday it was just the second day of a five-week course and in the morning i was showing the students how to make uh um, how to make uh, stock and broth and so on and also how to do a green salad and always as part of our teaching of the demonstrations every day particularly on the 12-week courses and the the longer courses we always look at what we're doing and say now how could you start a business from this uh, and you it, it can be famous for just one thing basically so I was saying to them you know there's a, a craving for broth and for good stock. We sell lots of it in our little farm shop at the school. Um, I, particularly if you can get enough organic chicken bones or whatever. It doesn't have to be just chicken. But this is a whole business. And I was telling them about the stall at the Man Point Farmer's Market where they sell a stock and broths and ramen and all of that. And so that's an opportunity with that. And then uh, with, the, with the coarse salad leaves, there are lots of people growing a beautiful selection of salads. The other thing that uh, I love is uh, foraging. You know, I'm a real foraging nerd, a nerd and really love passing on that skill to the students as well, both on land and on the seashore. But uh, again, there are several of our past students are foraging. Uh, then that's not something you can do in Shanagar and make a, a living out of. But if you're living outside New York or in London or one of the big cities, at a time when all the restaurants are open, of course, you can do that and you can teach it. And then also teaching, of course, lots of our past students are um, and, and Linda Boo, the course in Dublin, the Dublin Hotel School. She had uh, run very successful uh, hotel school, uh, sorry, not hotel school, but Dublin uh, cooking school. Um, Linda Booth, uh, she's one of the, you know, the people who immediately springs to mind. Uh, who teaches and passing on her skills as well. So there's so many, uh, so many examples. I think, as you mentioned in the beginning, the bakery. For me, the the bakery resurgence yes. in Ireland works almost like an allegory of of taking stock of where we are yes. now. Yes. Yeah. Because there's no secret to the fact that the restaurant industry is is not particularly um, 
permanent when yes. people get into restaurants they tend to have an eight to ten year cycle it's yes. very hard to maintain the energy it's very yes. hard to it's a tough business to be in and a lot of people who take it as their as their life path love what they're putting on the plate and will find the energy to maintain yes. doing that what i'm fascinated by with the bakery is that there could be a bakery in every small village in ireland and it, are... the economics mm. work perfectly yeah. Because a lot of people who are baking, they're very happy to do 120, 140 loaves a day yeah. and be done. And make a living. And the yeah. public very quickly decided yeah. that it wasn't the same yeah. and therefore it doesn't need to be price matched. Yes. So you double the price. Yeah. You, you triple or quadruple the nutrition. Yeah. And the shelf life and all yes. those things. So the value is achieved. But the public decided we want this Yes. older way this new thing yeah. the bakers are training in and and, and the job is, yes. is is desirable it's not you yeah. know a chef is is, yes. a, is a passion uh, yes. from the heart but it's not exactly the best job to do yes. whereas bakers now are deciding um my loaves are, are 10 30 or 11 in the morning yeah we're not going to have them ready at seven yes because we're not going to get up at 1 a.m to have them ready that's for right that's so so exactly the decision that tim made at the yeah. in our bellamy bread shed so yeah. they're setting their own kind of rules that say i want this to be a good life and sustainable and and the economics of the bakery is actually working yeah and that is a reversal yes when you spoke about the the 80s and the changes and the farming and the trouble and the prices yeah. and the pushing in the supermarkets and, and all of that nowadays we my generation are petrified for climate change yeah and we're petrified to see it happen quickly to yes. see global warming to see the changes in in the in the planet but what's most scary is when you see older generations my i don't want to say my parents because they they are they're very good but you know some some older people um acknowledging it and just missing the point completely yes. you yeah. know and that's yeah. what really scares us because we say like, how the hell is this going to be solved fast enough yeah but then when you see something like how quickly the bakery says right here is how this works the public agreed i'll pay what what needs to be paid for it the bakeries are popping up they are sustainable bakers are happy yeah it's paying for itself and now the final piece of the puzzle is that there's wheat being grown all over ireland yes so we're we're going to so think about how much more money will be sustained within the economy how many more jobs how many more everything yes there was a woman and i definitely won't say her name because it's a little bit of a criticism and i'd hate to criticize her because she's incredible amazing businesswoman and we were talking about cork city because i had Mm. a, a, a little food business in cork city and i was asked to join this group who were going to fix the city we were going to be innovative and they had us from all corners and it was a very effective table of people chatting and and good stuff happened and Starbucks was just opening. Yeah. And she said to me, because I was quite annoyed about it. There was one right beside my yeah. shop. And she said, but Jack, if we don't allow these these people to come in, if we don't support this, how are we going to generate jobs? Ireland has some of the lowest unemployment in the world. Yeah. There are we're struggling to find yes. <laughs> enough people to work. Starbucks and any of these bigger industries yeah. Reduce the amount of people needed to, to serve those yeah. things. Yeah. We send all the profits out to other countries. It's so yeah. simple. And yeah. like I was young and naive. Obvious. She was much older and so intelligent and amazing and doing so many things. It's so obvious to me. And now the bakery is just like this. It's I, I love talking about it. I love seeing it. Yeah. I love going into every... There's one opening in Inna Shannon. We passed yes. it there. There's a sign there's, up saying open soon. And there's soon. one in... in uh, 
Uh, there's one in Baltimore. And there can't yeah. be too many. Yeah, that's because right. Because yeah. you just do your community. Yes. Mm. You know, yes. and yeah. it's, it's and think about the amount of more money that's going to flow into the, into yeah. and the coffee happened just before it. Yes. And, you know, I mean, as an absolute example of what you say, and I absolutely agree with you, you could have a uh, an arson bakery in every town and pretty much a village in Ireland and a very happy one. My brother, who who was a very successful financial controller of one of the biggest companies in Ireland, he retired and he loved making bread. He started a bakery in Abbey Leaks, which is what used to be on the main road from Dublin to Cork, is now bypassed. And it's a, a, a lovely little town, but very small town. And now he employs a couple of uh, years later, he employs, I think it's seven ba- uh, bakers. He also uh, supplies one or two uh, farmers markets around. And there's always a queue and there's a little cafe there as well. There's always a little queue outside his door. Now, if it could, if it could succeed in Abbey Leaks, it would succeed in any uh, you know small town in Ireland. Uh, and so there's not a question about it. But actually, it's in a way, I often uh, say, it's back to the word desperation again, so many of these revivals, I mean, America was first to the table with a lot of the ultra-processed food and all that sort of thing. So in a way, we could see the, uh, you know, the impact of that on people's health and people's livelihoods and everything first in America. So when the bread got so bloody awful you couldn't eat it, Acme Bakery started in Berkeley. And then when the beer got so bloody awful you couldn't drink it, the, uh, the, the small breweries started. The farmer's market, again, when you couldn't get anything, you had no option uh, but uh, to buy the super from the supermarket. The farmer's market started in America. And in fact, which is what inspired me originally, the farmer's market in, in uh, San Francisco, which was in a parking lot originally. So when everything got so bad, it's amazing how human nature responds and you have these young people who just say well, bloody hell and they start very often in something very small and sometimes they stay small, sometimes they develop into something much bigger and that's really, and there's so many examples of that, the distilleries, all sorts of things. And let's not underestimate yeah. the exponential change that one industry swap can have. So yes. if I'm queuing up for two hours yeah. to get your brother's sourdough loaf yeah. and Abbey Leaks, and I get the loaf and I'm in love with the loaf and I get mm. one a week and I'm, I'm amazed that it yeah. lasts me for a week because I yeah. usually eat a loaf of bread every two days. But yeah. for some reason, one or two slices and I feel full. Why, hey, why is that? Oh, OK, now I'm realising. And I go an home point. and I slice it and I put it down and then I go to poach an egg and the egg falls apart and the yolk is a little bit white. And I put it on. No, I don't, actually don't. I was going to have it on the loaf of bread, but the loaf yeah. of bread is so good. I don't want to ruin it with this egg. And now (laughs) I'm thinking it doesn't look like what I see on Instagram. The bread does. Yeah. But the egg now doesn't. So I'm now going to investigate eggs and realize I need to do better with the eggs. And that's how, you know, so did it take eight years for the country to start realizing that coffee shouldn't be one button from a machine in a petrol station? Let's say eight to ten years. Bread now looks like it happened in four. How quickly will we see another industry say, yeah. Actually, no. Yeah. To the version, yeah. the version of this that we've gotten yes. used to, and it could be greens because greens are so effective in Ireland. Twelve yeah. months of the year. Yeah. Salads. Yes. Or chards or spinach or yeah. any of the, you know, like maybe we'll eventually just say, I'm not buying that Italian bag anymore. Maybe yeah. that's the next one. I don't know. Yeah. And there can be a small allotment all around the country in every village that provides enough yes. greens to yeah. to do. I don't know. I don't know what will happen next. That's a really, really interesting um, link of thoughts there. And But the, one of the things you said very early on there was 
actually, I eat a slice or two of my sourdough bread and I'm full. This is so fundamental and it's really interesting when this penny drops with people because if you have a slice pan, for example, you can eat four or five slices of slice pan, nothing happens. Nothing. Basically, nothing happens. You don't, you eat one slice, good, one slice of good sourdough and your bodies feel satisfied. You might manage two or whatever, indeed you might, uh, but you just feel full. And the other thing, the interesting thing we observe at the school as well, there's several interesting things because a lot of the students are with us for three months. So all of them would tell you that they feel different, their skin feels different. They, And a lot of them, students would say, this happens every single time. Funny thing, when I came here, I've for, for years I've had tummy problems, I've had digestion problems. And, you know, I've just realised that it's gone, it's changed. And that's from eating a different type of food. But the other thing that happens almost immediately is, you know the way now snacking is a way of life? People sort of just all the time have energy bars or these things that tell you about healthy, whatever. If you ever see healthy on the label, keep well away from it because it means definitely probably isn't. But anyway, but people are snacking all the time. But the students suddenly realise they don't need a snack. Mm. They have what they have in the morning, you know, whatever, if they have porridge or good homemade muesli or granola and lovely thick unctuous yoghurt mm. from the from the farm. And, and then they have a, 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 a substantial meal at midday. They don't feel, they just don't feel any kind of urge to have any other snack. This is a big eye opener to them as well. They and and it's all about. There's so much more. The, the the real food, and I don't have to tell you guys this, is much more nutrient dense, and so it's more satisfying. We don't even have to. Our bodies just know it, and you just also you eat much less because actually you don't need the the volume because it's our bodies craving more nourishment that encourages to, uh, to eat more and eat more snacks. Yeah, the most so, profitable ingredient to put in your food if you want to make money selling it is air. Air, or, or yeah, water. water, yes. You know, yeah. And that's actually yeah. what's well, going on the, there. Back to our the sort of mayo thing. I mean, the, the, it's always interesting that the, I think there are about 12 or 14 ingredients in you know uh, the, the well-known brands. Yeah. And basically the second one is water. Mm. Mm. That's the second. So... I just see loads and loads of opportunity. I'm very optimistic about the future. and But so many opportunities for people who want to either grow or to cook. I mean, look at the way things are happening. And nowadays, even for a lot of people, if they know the kind of food that they need and want, very often they can't get it. Even in Ireland, there are areas that you could almost describe as food deserts, where the only option is to buy something, you know, off a a shelf in a supermarket and so on. But so the big opportunity there that I see is that people are, and this will in, increase their craving to be able to source food they can trust, food that they know is fresh and uh, and properly grown and local and all of that. Food that they can trust is going to nourish them rather than do them a damage. So there's going to be, as far as I can see, there's going to be more and more and more of a demand for that. And the young people can, of course, this is very often, it'll be a small production. So lots and lots of small productions in a parish, in an area. And then uh, I really noticed during COVID that in our little farm shop at at the cooking school, that people who would never normally... Uh, have come up 
to the farm shop. They would have gone in and done a great big shop in, in Tesco or Aldi or Little or whatever. Uh, when they were locked down for a start and couldn't travel more than five kilometres, they suddenly realised what was in their own village, in their own parish. And I'm talking about there are people between us and the village in Chanagari who had never been up to the farm shop, our little farm shop. And suddenly they realised they could buy this uh, every day they could buy fresh sourdough, um, 48 hour fermentation sourdough, they could buy raw milk, they could buy the vegetables and, and the herbs and things from the farm, plus lots of, you know, little dishes that um, that are ready to, like fish pies and all that sort of thing, soups, etc. So basically they came up and, of course, in many cases, not all, some things are more expensive. First of all, it's a lot of it's organic and all of that. And But then you could see the penny dropping with people. I'm sure you found the same in Neighbour Food, Jack, where people suddenly thought, God, I really understand that I'd be better to spend a bit more on this food that I know is nourishing and it's not full of chemicals and that's going to make us healthy and help us to resist COVID and the viruses and all the colds and and also to give us to help us to, to cope with the anxiety, which the food we eat really does impact on. You could see the penny dropping with people. Look, I think I'd be better to invest a bit more money in buying this kind of food and feeding it to my family and so on. Um, because it was obvious the less you spent on food, the more you spent on meds. And I mean, there's actually plenty of research mm-hmm. uh, to prove that now. And then there's also people are really, they're really getting the difference it makes to actually, and, and the power we have to make a decision about how we spend our food euro. And suddenly people realise that when you buy in a local shop or a local, for a local farmer or a local farmer's market, you're putting the money back into your own community. Hello, of course you are. And you're creating employment. And there's such a feel-good factor about that. And suddenly thinking about, actually thinking about, where, who grew your food, who raised these animals, and actually the satisfaction of knowing the person who actually uh, reared that bullock and, and or that meat, and going, of course going on to your local butcher mm-hmm. and all of that as well. So, I mean, I know lots of people who've had this real conversion on the road to Damascus in the last year, year and a half, where before this they'd have just got into their car, gone in, done a huge big shop in Tesco or something, come home, wouldn't even think about it. Now they're loving the difference in the shopping experience as well. And also the satisfaction of knowing that they've spent their food euro in a way that's going to impact on their local community. And there's a real joy in that. And and people are proud of it and they get such a lovely feel-good factor from it. I suppose what you're saying really is the value is way more than... Just the taste of it. Yeah. But the value is yes. really, really supporting you. Right, okay. okay let's roll. Uh, Pet, that can't be done. So, is there any. <laughs> I love the way uh, Tim just kind of hushed us out of the room there at the end. But that was yes. a really lovely conversation, full of hope, full, full of passion, full of just good Dorina vibes, right? Sure. And you know, it, it actually poses a question for me that I hope we can get stuck into, which is, it's quite obvious listening to her, our parents, like any of the older generations, that a lot of this feeling came from nostalgia, kind of just knowing that the way it was, was working. And there's maybe 
as the world evolves and the world evolves in incredible ways we're always getting better i'm not i'm not a luddite and refusing to accept it but for them a lot of it plays into nostalgia and we hear that a lot when we talk to people but Mm. for us you know that nostalgia isn't quite if we were to be nostalgic we'd say wow the big supermarkets were so exciting you know so what is it i guess for a younger generation without that nostalgia why is it that younger people are getting into it and hopefully we can you know, shed a bit of light on that. Those questions. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Looking forward to the rest of the series. Who have we got coming up next? It's a secret. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be good. Bye, everyone. Your powder dry. Goodbye. <laughs> Keep them in suspense.